Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss protests in Bangladesh and the grinding war in Ukraine. It's all coming up. Hey there, John. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing all right. Thanks, Ethan. The cold weather has finally come to Chicago yeah. uh, at the end of October, so uh, sitting here in a big sweater. Cold weather, and, and we're uh, approaching Hollow's Eve. So I, I, I won't ask you what you wore as a costume. I, I doubt you want to talk about that. And, you know, we're, we're intrigued. We're, we're not supposed to be backwards looking, so we'll look ahead to <laughs> tonight. Uh, what kind of candy can we expect you to be eating over there be a, a couple of kit kats i think and then I, I mean i can't stand this thing that you guys eat this candied corn stuff oh, that's it's ridiculous no no i i it's like a toothbreaker isn't it i absolutely agree with that now pe- people that defend candied corn uh defending the indefensible lunatics frankly yeah they are i, I must i must say before we get started that chicago has uh, as a city each and every each and every one of its residents really deeply commits to Halloween. The UPS drivers were were uh, walking around in masks with the, the the car was covered in cobwebs. I don't know if that was from poor maintenance or whether it's Halloween, <laughs> but either way, it's working for them. Well, for a city that dies an entire river green to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, I would expect nothing less. Expect nothing less, exactly. <laughs> we talked last week about Pakistan's upcoming general election. Uh, we've talked plenty about India's election next year. Uh, by the way, Baby Ruth for me, uh, favorite candy. Um, but there's a, a no- <laughs> apologies, I didn't ask. <laughs> there's another South Asian country, uh, Bangladesh, that that we sometimes I think I think we sometimes leave them out. Uh, but they also have a major election coming up in January. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I think the reason we're talking about them so early before January, you mentioned the elections not, not until January, is because there's been near round-the-clock opposition rallies in the, in the Bangladeshi capital, uh, Dhaka, um, to protest the country's longtime prime minister, Sheikh Hasina. But, but before we get into all of that, let's zoom out a bit and kind of interrogate that question of why we don't talk about them maybe as much as we talk about their big neighbours. Um, you know, it's sometimes easy to, f- to forget that uh, Bangladesh is the eighth largest or eighth most populous country in the world, 170 odd million people. And for reference, Russia has about 145 million residents. So, you know, Bangladesh is right up right. there. In a, in a much, much bigger land area. Exactly. Bangladesh Russia. is tiny. Um, but, you know, of course, the, one of the reasons I think we don't talk about Bangladesh is unlike its neighbor and unlike Russia, um, it doesn't have nuclear weapons. Um, so it kind of slips off the radar a little bit. But on top of having a lot of people, Bangladesh is also the third largest Muslim majority country in the world. It's South Asia's, South Asia's second largest economy um, and the third largest military. So there's really no good reason why we shouldn't be paying a lot more attention to, to Bangladesh, I don't think. So with that said, as you mentioned, the election is coming up in January um, and these protests around the country are, um, are getting pretty serious. In fact, I think on Sunday... Um, police actually said that those protests turned turned pretty violent. Um, a police officer was brutally killed by a mob. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people were injured and thousands more were arrested. And that includes the Secretary General of the Opposition Bangladesh Nationalist Party. Um, he was ordered to be uh, sent to prison on vandalism charges, I believe. Wow. Okay, so I, I want to ask why these protests started, why they turned so violent. Uh, but first, who is Sheikh Hasina, the, the prime minister? Yeah, she's a fascinating character. And again, one that we probably 
ought to know more about. Um, so she's the daughter of Bangladesh's founder, uh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, uh, who was the first bank, uh, president of Bangladesh after it declared independence from Pakistan back in uh, 1971. So it's still a relatively new country in, in global terms. So Hasina has been in power, or she was in power first from 96 to 2001, and then she returned to office in 2009, and she's been in power uh, ever since then. Uh, she's actually the longest-serving female head of state in history, which is a, an interesting fact. But throughout her really long career, she's had kind of one primary antagonist, a nemesis, if you will, <laughs> um, and, and her name is Khaleda Zia. Uh, she led the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party from 91 to 96, and then again from 2001 to 2006. Though, interestingly, the two women actually worked together to oust Bangladesh's military dictator in 1990 before they kind of became rivals um, after restoring the country's democracy. Also, you will have noticed um, that Bangladesh has actually been led by women for all but two of the last 32 years, which is kind of crazy, right? So since 1990 wow. to, to yeah. 2003, all but two years has been one of those two women leading the country. Um, but anyway, the early partnership, as I mentioned, between Zia and Hasina has now turned really, really bitter. They're, they're really fierce rivals. Um, and, and I think the Prime Minister Hasina's critics say she's now pretty much f you know, totally focused on her own political survival uh, and making sure Zia doesn't return to power much more than she is in, you know, good governance or, or anything like that. Yeah, we've all we've all got a nemesis like that. Uh, <laughs> but, but John, that's that's a pretty serious accusation uh, for critics to be making. What's their evidence? Yeah, um, it is it is serious, but I think it's not without merit. Um, Zia got caught up in a corruption investigation in 2018 that uh, many international kind of watchdog groups um, and actually the U.S. State Department as well. Uh, said was politically motivated uh, from Hasina. It ended with a 17-year prison sentence for Zia uh, and a ban on all of her political activities. Um, Hasina's government also recently sentenced Zia's son to prison in absentia for charges that date back to 2007. He'd actually taken over from his mother as the chairperson of the opposition party after she was sentenced to prison, so going after the, the son as well. Um, you know, I think to critics and outside observers, it's kind of part and parcel of what Sheikh Hasina has been doing as prime minister the last few years. Um, they say she's kind of downgraded Bangladesh's democracy, brought the judiciary under her thumb, undermined freedom of press. You, you know, we know the drill right. on how this stuff goes by now. Typical stuff. So that must be what they're protesting, the degradation of democracy and, and whatnot. Well, yeah, obviously. I think I think that that has kind of built up over over a few years and is spilling out now. But I think the protesters have a sort of an, an immediate concern, a, a flashpoint, if you will. Um, and that's what we kicked off this conversation with. It's the upcoming election, right? Uh, the current disagreement that they're having, um, one of many, I suppose, but it, it's down to this big question around who should actually run or you know administer the election in January. Um, the current prime minister has seen it. And her party, they say that in keeping with the constitution, they should be in charge of managing the process. Um, opposition leaders say that Hasina should at least temporarily step down and let a, a caretaker government administer the election to make sure that it's free and fair and unbiased. Um, and I think they probably have pretty fair reason to, to worry that it won't be in the last election that her party uh, did administer. 
Yeah, that was back in 2018. There were huge reports of vote rigging, um, and opposition was you know pretty badly suppressed. Uh, I think, in fact, Zia's party ended up boycotting the election because they just felt like they couldn't get a a, a fair go at it. Um, and and Hasina obviously ended up winning uh, something like 75 percent of the vote in that last election. Any reason to think the opposition will get their their wish here? That you know that the political process will be more open this time around? Well, we like to try and find silver linings and be optimistic where we can, Ethan. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so often I give you the same answer and say, I'm, I'm not overly optimistic that that'll happen. Um, you know, if we bring it back to the present, uh, Prime Minister Hasina's party organized a counter protest in, in Dhaka yesterday. So they don't look like they're kind of ready to give up power too easily. They're, they're countering the protest rather than kind of working with, with the concerns. Right. Um, I don't think, the idea of having a caretaker government to administer the, the elections is a crazy one. Bangladesh has done that before. Um, but the problem is when they've done it, those governments that are put in place to manage the election process have consistently gone further than they were supposed to. They've outlasted their mandate. Um, and so that's a very convenient and, and you know reasonable argument that the current prime minister says, you know, that's why we shouldn't do it. Look, I think if you have to sum up this kind of situation at this stage, in their careers, people like Hasina, you know, lifelong political animals, huge heavyweights in the political scene in their countries. They know where all the bodies are buried. They have a lot of bodies that they don't want to be dug up themselves. Um, so it becomes an act of survival. It's, it's more about being terrified of losing power because then the same state machinery that you've used to uh, subjugate your enemies, to put down the opposition, to prevent them from getting power, that gets weaponized and used against you by your opponents. So, you know, losing power really often becomes life or death. Um, so, you know, <laughs> with those stakes, I think the next couple of months uh, potentially are, shaking up, are shaping up to be pretty pretty ugly in Bangladesh. To the libel lawyers that are listening to this from Bangladesh, John did not mean literal uh, bodies being <laughs> hidden. All metaphorical. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Millennium Space Systems. Millennium Space Systems, a Boeing company, is a small satellite prime delivering high-performance constellation solutions for the national security space. Founded in 2001, the company's active production lines and 80% vertical integration enable the rapid delivery of small satellites across missions and orbits. Check out the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So we've obviously spent the last few weeks talking about the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, which, by the way, John, just as an aside, it looks to have turned into a ground invasion, as we predicted on Friday. Uh, that's a different story. But mm -hmm. there's, of course, another war going on in a nearby neighborhood. So what's the latest from Ukraine? Yeah, I think it's really, really important that we remember what's going on in Ukraine, um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, something horrible is unfolding in, in the Mideast at the same time. Despite the fact that there is just so much going on yeah, all over the world. All over the world. And, then, you know, it's 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 it, it's a real full-time job paying attention to it. But that's why we're here, Ethan. We do that for our listeners and our readers, don't we? Um, anyway, so I do think it is important to remember about Ukraine. Um, really forgetting about Ukraine would be a best-case scenario for Putin. Um, it's one that he's trying to manipulate, to cultivate folks forgetting about what's going on in Ukraine and, and focusing exclusively in the Middle East. Um, and as it escalates and spirals, 
um, Western resources will start to turn away from Ukraine, or this is Putin's hope, of course, um, and that global attention will turn away from the war and, and leaders from the global south will start identifying new reasons for the high food and fuel prices that I think has largely kept the pressure on Putin to now. So, you know, it's in his interest for folks to have other scapegoats and other things to focus on. Um, but I do think attention before the Middle East crisis broke out, um, you know, three, three and a bit weeks ago, attention was starting to turn away from Ukraine a little bit, um, perhaps because of their less than stellar performance in, in the counteroffensive over the summer. I'm not yeah. sure. But yeah, I, th I think that's true to say. Yeah. I mean, can you put that into perspective? How, how, how much less than stellar are we talking? Uh, has Ukraine's, you know, this long anticipated counteroffensive that we spent weeks preparing for and talking about, I mean, how mm. much has it gone according to plan? No, it hasn't. And what we're talking about when we say sort of less than stellar um, is that there's been barely any sort of territorial changes along the front line. There's been a few um, here and there, but nothing major. A handful of towns have been captured, um, but no, nothing of major strategic significance, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, I think Ukrainian commanders and intelligence officials always said that it wasn't going to be easy. They tried to tamp down expectations, you know, right from the start, I think. Um, they said it was going to be, you know, take longer um, than Ukraine's supporters in the West and the media wanted it to take. Um, and they also point out that I think that their goal wasn't just to take back land, right? It's not just about a, you know, a game of risk on a board game. It's they're trying to destroy Russian assets. They're trying to take out tanks, artillery, artillery units and headquarters even. Um, and, and all of that is fair and true, but I think it is also fair and true to say that Russia has been a very formidable defender. Um, certainly they have improved and learned lessons um, when you compare it to the early maybe 12 months of the war. Um, interestingly, I was reading something the other day where defense analysts were describing how Russia is now defending the territory that they have using a tactic called elastic offense, where they kind of retreat to a second line of positions, encourage Ukrainian troops to advance, and then they attack them as those soldiers move in to attack them. Um, you know, I think it's still obviously clearly a defensive maneuver and you don't get a lot of wars where a country invades another country and then employs such openly defensive tactics as if they were, you know, defending their own lands, their own capitals. Um, so even though I think it's fair to say the offensive didn't go, wasn't as successful as many people had hoped in, in, in the Ukrainian camps, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that Russia's kicking goals either. It just means that things are kind of grinding along, right? Um, but if we switch from those border towns in Ukraine um, to the kind of Crimean front, that's down in the south and it's, you know, a naval, mostly a naval battlefront, Ukraine has had some successes there um, along the Black Sea. We, we've seen uh, some of the Western-supplied weapons that, Ukraine has taken on over the summer. Um, they've kind of brought places like Sevastopol and, and big, por big portions of Russia's Black Sea naval fleet into range for Ukraine. Um, listeners might have read of the attacks on, on the Russian naval HQ in, in Crimea uh, a month or so ago. Um, there's been various commando raids throughout Crimea over the summer. So that has been successful and it's important because it helps keep the Black Sea free-ish and open-ish for the civilian cargo ships that carry the grain from Ukraine from the port of Odessa along the west edge of the Black Sea and out through the Bosphorus um, near Turkey. So 
you know, we've got this kind of two, almost two different parts of the war. We've got the land war, which I think, as I say, is mostly stalled out, but the Crimean front, which is a little more positive for Ukraine. So, I mean, back to, back to the land piece. I mean, what, what does fighting look right look like right now? Is it the same sort of grinding, attritional warfare that we have become accustomed to? In short, yes. Um, but there have been some developments over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, while we've all been watching the events unfold in Israel and Gaza, a battle has been going on in the eastern Ukrainian town of Avdivka. Uh, despite not making the front pages, perhaps because it's harder to pronounce, but, um, you know, Bakhmut and, and Mariupol are now common common knowledge in most folks' um, lexicons. Yeah, these, these are not easy names to pronounce to begin with, but we, we learned them exactly. quickly. Exactly, <laughs> but because they were on the front pages every day, right? Um, and, and now they're not, or this, this particular battle hasn't been. But it is quickly turning into one of the biggest battles of the year, uh, or of the war even, um, I would say. Uh, and it is actually reminiscent of the Battle of Bakhmut, which, which happened earlier this year. Um, you know, not to get too deep into the gory details, Ukraine says it's killing up to a thousand Russian soldiers every day. Um, and according to British intelligence, it could be Russia's deadliest battle this year. Again, I hate getting into the numbers because they're just impossible to verify. Um, but you know, I think we can pretty safely say that just an extraordinary number of soldiers are dying on both sides each day. And, and we don't know on the Ukrainian side, because of course, Ukraine doesn't publish its own casualty statistics, um, but where this battle differs from, say, the battle for Bakhmut, like I mentioned, um, Avdivka is known as the gateway to the Donetsk province. Um, and it actually is a, a fairly strategically important city in the east of Ukraine. Um, so the brutality of the fighting there is perhaps less symbolic than some of the other fights that, we, that we've seen over the last you know, six to 12 months. Um, plus, I think timing is a real big issue here too. Both sides know the front lines will probably freeze figuratively and literally um, when winter comes very, very, very shortly to that part of the world. So they're probably both looking to score one, one propaganda, one actual victory before that happens. Um, but, you know, as I said before, and like the battle for Bakhmut, um, these grinding urban battles over fairly small towns, and they're not big cities like we saw in the, the opening parts of the war. They are pretty small rural towns, right? Um, they're just indicative of just how brutal and attritional this whole war has become and how few major, you know, headline-grabbing breakthroughs I think we can expect going forward. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, are, are, are these the early signs of a stalemate, of a, a permanent stalemate? Uh, well, I, I, yes, I, I think yes. I, I think the fighting would probably suggest that we're in a stalemate right now. Um but we have to be careful to distinguish that a stalemate doesn't necessarily mean either side is preparing to give up. It just means they're fighting and not winning either way. Um, you know, Ukraine is still asking for and still receiving um, new weapon systems from from Western supporters. Uh, Ukrainian pilots are currently training using their F-16s that they've been given, um, and they think that that can turn the tide of the war. So they're still looking for those breakthroughs. And as for Russia... I think their biggest bet strategically has always been to wait Ukraine out to hope that support dies off, um, wanes over time. And, and, you know, we've certainly seen some signs, as I said before, that that might be right. Uh, we've got attention grabbing things happening elsewhere. And of course, we'll get a big piece of that puzzle revealed to us after the presidential elections in the US next year about whether 
the US stays um, such a staunch supporter of Ukraine as it has been so far. You know, I think we mentioned at the top, and, and I've said it a few times, multiple crises kind of draw attention away from Ukraine, and and, and that only helps Russia's war effort. Um, and I think we wrote in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago, um, I think this is why US President Joe Biden has been so clearly being trying to link the two conflicts, the Israeli conflict and the Ukrainian conflict, um, link those in the minds of the Americans. Uh, the idea that so, so if you are fighting on principle, you're fighting in both of those places so that Ukraine doesn't get left behind. Um, you know, as for peace talks, um, you know, that I think I saw that this, there are some peace talks happening in Malta at the moment um, between 65 countries without Russia, I should note. Um, but realistically, Ethan, I think it's it's there's no appetite to negotiate an end to the war on either side, you know, anytime soon. Well, thanks, John. Appreciate the update. Thanks, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, if you love Intrigue Out Loud, and if you're listening, I imagine you do, please make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, really wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.